0: Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best selling author and award winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida, a 100th anniversary episode of the Rosewood Massacre. Craig, a, a story that uh, was buried and unearthed by our guest, Gary Moore, a uh, former newspaper reporter former author of Rosewood, The Full Story, set us up with just a little bit of background, and we're going to go right into the interview because there's a, a lot to uh, unpack in the yes. verbiage of the day here. Florida, as we learned from, from our episode about uh, lynching, Florida
1: had a very high rate of, of lynching. There was a high rate of racial violence here in Florida. People don't necessarily think of Florida as being a southern state, but it was very much a southern state mm-hmm. with a lot of southern attitudes towards race. And you know, there was an, a, the massacre in Ocoee in 1920. As a result of uh, black people trying to vote, and then in 1923, the Rosewood massacre occurred, and then it made national headlines. But then, you know, in those pre-internet days, news about the massacre just sort of vanished from 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 everyone's imagination, from everyone's memory, until Gary came along in 1982 and uncovered it. And that's why it's it's very good that we've got him here today to talk to us on the on what what is the hundredth anniversary of this horrific event.
0: The book he wrote is Rosewood: The Full Story. Our guest Gary Moore. Gary, thank
1: you so much for joining us today. It's it's a privilege to have you as a guest uh, to talk about this very important topic about the 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 ro- the the eruption and erasure of, of Rosewood. How did you first come across this?
2: I worked for the Saint Petersburg Times back before it was the Tampa Bay Times and. I had set myself up with this uh, sort of dream assignment where I would just wander around Florida and look for interesting stuff. And this had resulted in an extremely uh, trivial article once where I went south of St. Pete. And so I thought the next time I'll go north. And I looked on the map and there was this intriguing blank spot, which I didn't know was the confluence of the Great Gulf Hammock and Swanee Hammock. But I thought, you know, Gosh, what's in a blank spot? And maybe I thought maybe I'd find some gator hunters or some sort of innocuous kind of local color. So I drove up there, asked, stopped a few times, didn't see anything interesting. So I went all the way out to Cedar Key, which is the island town that was once Florida's major port with the Caribbean. But that was it before the turn of the century, and it got bypassed, and now it's like a living museum. And it rather, in those days, was almost a sort of spooky kind of place, filled with old legends and memories and nostalgia. So I started poking around, and I said, Isn't, there seems to be some sort of atmosphere here. What's, Am I imagining this? And this lady said to me, she said, you know Cedar Key is all white. And I said, Oh, well, I'd always wanted to do a story about one of the all white Bastion towns like Vider, Texas, or Robbinsville, North Carolina. So I thought, Well, here's a chance to ask them, How did Cedar Key become all white? Well, I didn't, I had no idea the culture of local tall tales and legends that I was dealing with because. On the on the front end, there was this wall of silence because they were all convinced that, I don't know if all of them were, but many were convinced that Cedar Key was all white because what they call the Rosewood Massacre had run them out of there. And Cedar Key prided itself on having kept this thing a secret. Hmm. And all of that was a misconception on the part of Cedar Key. The incident was real, but the way they interpreted it was not. The way it became a secret was much more mysterious than a bunch of uh, good old boys in Cedar Key hiding the facts. Forty-five miles from the site of Rosewood is the University of Florida. No, not by the time I came along, they had no knowledge of it at all, as if it just completely disappeared. To go back to the story, okay, so I asked the lady. I says, "Oh, how did it become all white?" She says, "Well, we don't talk about that, but there is one woman." who really knows local history, and maybe she'll talk to you. I thought, what does that mean? So I went over there, a very hot day. I got. All, I was almost dizzy with the heat. And this lady, turns out, she lives in an old church. And I, I had no idea that this was a former black church. And that's why people thought maybe she would talk to me about the secret of what happened to all the black people. And her name was Kathy Christie, a rather symbolic name for somebody who lives in a church. I go blundering in there, and I she's very nice and very cordial, loves to have an outsider. And then and then I get around to the subject. I says, well, say, how did Cedar Key become all white? Her whole mood changed. And she narrowed her eyes at me, and she said the words that, that every reporter hopes they'll hear. She said... I know what you're digging for. You're trying to get me to talk about that massacre. So from then on out, I was. And she had a lot of misconceptions about it. She thought it was a vast killing field. There's, They have a lot of old fellows around there that that boast about it. But I said, gosh, is there any way to find it? She says, yeah, that's no problem. You pass it on the way coming in. There's a sign there on the highway. And I said, a sign? And it's a secret? She says, yeah, I don't know how the sign got there, but there it is. Just a regular highway sign says Rosewood. So I drove out to the site. And first, I I stopped off a few places in Cedar Key just to talk to other people to see if other people knew about this event. Indeed, they did. And so something had happened. So I drove to the site. There was nothing there except you could see some of the bricks and old chips of ceramic pottery Mm -hmm. half buried in the sand. There were no structures standing, and there were some trailers there, and there was a large house that I didn't realize at the time had dated from the events in 1923 that was the former home of the white storekeeper, John Wright all I knew was there was this eerie sense of who who were all these people that had lived here how many of them were killed how many were killed in secret what had happened here so I called my editor she was as astonished as I was i then the logical thing to do was go 45 miles up the road to the university of florida where you'd think they would know chapter and verse about anything like this sure So I went into the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida, and they gave me blank looks. They had never never heard even a rumor of anything like this. Not even a vague legend that they didn't believe. They had never heard of it. Only 45 miles away.
0: Yeah, and what makes this astounding, we're talking 1982,
2: right? Right, correct.
0: This is not, uh, I mean, that's... 60 years almost after the incident. And, and this is is not, this wasn't one or two people killed. It's, it's astonishing. And, and you you mentioned this and certainly we'll get back into it, but uh, an, an event of this magnitude of this carnage. It, it made be,
1: national headlines at the time.
0: Yeah. And then it utterly was, erased, totally, totally yeah. erased.
2: From the very beginning, it was a matter of what used to be called mass hysteria. It was a mass conversion event. People just believed all sorts of weird stuff. And pretty soon they were believing that the blacks were rising up and there were white guys coming in from 75 miles around. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. They I- didn't wind up being able to kill many people because immediately the African-American population fled into the woods. Wow. Yeah. Something was programmed into their consciousness once they heard the initial gunfire, bam, they were gone. Uh-huh. Uh, I talked to people who were there, uh, some of some of whom were adults at the time, and you never could quite get a straight answer about how that was programmed in. But they didn't have any doubt, man. They heard the first shootout, and they were gone. And because of that, the death, death toll was far lower than it might have been.
1: So tell us how you take us back to January 1st, 1923 and tell us how how the whole thing started according to to the research that you've done.
2: It started with with a sexual story, a sexual attack story that was the kind of thing that was it's quintessential to our view of the old Jim Crow South in the lynching era. And the woman that raised the alarm, the white woman was named Fanny Taylor. And the reason she said, that a black stranger had broken into her home early on the morning of January 1st after her husband had gone to work, knocked her down. She insisted that there wasn't a rape. I don't know. I talked to one woman who said she was there when the doctor, after examining it, said Fannie Taylor, said there was a rape. So already the mass hysteria atmosphere is starting. You get these bifurcating versions, four or five different versions of what's going on. At any rate, Fannie Taylor raised the alarm. The symptoms, when you dig into the tales, the symptoms suggest, I don't know if you've ever heard of sleep paralysis hallucination, where you wake up and it's like, they say that a lot of the witch uh, abduction stories from the middle ages came to this. You wake up and suddenly there's a monster in the room, but you're only thinking you're awake. It had a lot of the symptoms of that, But by the same token, the white guys that came, and immediately they're going to do something, they brought a tracking dog, later two professional bloodhounds, and they seemed to find a firm scent leading three miles up the railroad to Rosewood.
0: So it was never, I guess, determined conclusively one way or the other whether any sort of sexual assault actually occurred.
2: Well, what happened... If you look back into all the, there was a new burst of hysteria in the 90s over the Rosewood claims case, and it It, came to be accepted as true that Fannie Taylor had a secret white boyfriend and that he had beat her up and she had to explain the bruises to her husband. So she invented this story. But you didn't find that evidence of that. No, I did not. That sort of blame a black man phenomenon certainly did happen at some times in the Jim Crow South, and it's happened recently. Uh But in that case, the the, the secret white boyfriend was a myth. He (laughs) tracks back to one informant who who was an 11-year-old girl at the time and said she saw him. And she also said, if you really look at what she said, she said she stepped over 19 dead white men on the front porch. (laughs) All her relatives said she was not on the front porch. Mm-hmm. And not only that, me being the bumbling sort of helpful journalist, I says, oh, uh, well, did you mean about 19? Oh, no, she said <laughs> exactly 19 because oh, wow. I counted them. Oh, man. Well, uh, okay. So, in other words, that's the level of her credibility.
1: So they brought in the dog. Tell us yes. what happened after that.
2: They brought the dog. Um, it went three miles up the railroad track, went clear through Rosewood. Seemed like it was going to pass through it. But at the house facing the railroad track on the other side of Rosewood, the dog suddenly turned aside, very confidently went to the front door. Nobody was there. They pushed the door open. And then all these fellows, the ones I could find, they were full of tales about what the dog went to. Because that's a famous part of bloodhound lore, that dogs are almost like they're dancing with an invisible partner. They'll go to every object that the the person touched. But then the trail went out the back door, into the backyard. Suddenly this dog that was so confident before now is very confused. The scent is gone and the manhunt is frustrated. But all the guys in the manhunt, they've seen this, this a million times before. They say, that fellow must have gotten in a wagon and lifted his scent off the ground. From there the frustrated manhunt somehow got a name of a guy in Rosewood who they said was the wagon driver who picked this fellow up and took him somewhere. Again, this atmosphere is getting very confused. The, The house belonged to a guy named Aaron Carrier. The story would have been that Aaron Carrier would have run a mile across Rosewood to go get Sam Carter, the wagon driver, bring him back, and then take the guy in the golf hammock. But at any rate, they found Sam Carter and they decided that they had to interrogate him. And apparently the method of choice at that time was asphyxiation. You pull a guy up on a rope, but you don't drop him to break his neck. You suffocate him to get him to talk. Wow. Well, as nightfall came on, Every every white guy above the age of seventeen was converging on this scene, where here they are in the dark pulling up Sam Carter, and uh, until he he says, "Okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you." Well, does it was he really the wagon driver? Do we know? We don't know, but they thought they knew. Yeah, and, and then he would he would say, "I'll tell you," and he would take them supposedly somewhere in the hammock, and they put the dogs out. The dogs couldn't get a scent. So getting madder and madder, they pulled him up again, and he said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, maybe they did this two times, maybe three, but on the third time, there was a guy named Bryant Hudson, who was known as a local drunk, and he had been getting more and more voluble, apparently inebriated, cussing and shouting at Sam Carter, and suddenly the interrogation ended because there was a shotgun blast. They looked in amazement, and Brian Hudson had killed Sam Carter. So there's death number one. Mm. That's Monday night, January 1st. Now, from there, things went into a lull. And the hope was, well, this is unfortunate, but uh, we'll have the one killing. This is one of the old manhunt tragedies, and that's it. But as it went along, the rumors got worse and worse and worse, and the tension built until Thursday night, and we don't know exactly what the motivation was, but there was two central white guys that were involved. One was a local constable who'd just been fired as deputy sheriff. He was in a real tragic state, and then along comes the second guy, Henry Andrews, who's a very authoritative guy. He's head of all logging operations locally for Cummer Lumber, but also known as a real bad guy. And some some of his African-American loggers called him Boots because they said he liked to kick people. Oh, boy. We don't know about him, but at the very least, he was bad enough to engender a lot of slander, or maybe <laughs> the slander was true. Okay, so he, he and the, uh, the, the, the fire deputy, Polly Wilkerson, with an unknown number of other guys, probably no more than 15, maybe as few as five. Here in the middle of the night, they go to a house that until this point in Rosewood has been uninvolved. But there's a guy in the house named Sylvester Carrier, who is a kind of charismatic character. He's sort of idealized in the legends. He sort of becomes the the shotgun-wielding Paul Bunyan of the Rosewood legends. Mm-hmm. And, and I idealized him at first in 1982, but then I got to thinking more and more and more. And I don't think he's necessarily, well, I think he's a complex human like we all are. Right. They went to his house. Actually, it was his mother's house. He and his wife lived in a, a an apartment on the back. This is in Rosewood, full moon. Very cold night. Cold weather had just come in. All the circumstances are ripe for something to happen, For something to blow up, all this tension from the manhunt to release. These guys get in the yard, and they call for Sylvester Carrier's mother, Sarah Carrier, who does washing over in Sumner, and um, nobody will come out. Mm -hmm. So apparently, Polly Wilkerson, the fire deputy, Blunders up onto the porch, and a little dog there is known for being really mean and biting. And so, Polly Wilkerson, in his big moment, he's got to deal with this little animal that's chewing his leg all up. (laughs) And the witness stories are necessarily garbled at this because suddenly everything happened at once. Yeah. There was a pistol shot, apparently a pistol. And it went through the, the, the front bedroom window and struck Sarah Carrier in the head. So the, the the theory would be that she must have exclaimed when the dog was shot. I think at first they shot the dog, then immediately there was another shot and killed her. So whoever whoever was shooting must have been right there on the porch. Mm-hmm. At the was same it, time Was
1: it the deputy? Do you think it was the deputy?
2: Yeah, I think it was the deputy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was a a general barrage of gunfire, like in a target panic in some of these police incidents you hear about. Yeah, yeah. One guy sees a movement in in an alley. Mm -hmm. He shoots. The other guys don't think they got time to decide, and they all shoot at once. Well, in the upstairs window, this house was full of women and children because for some reason, Sarah Carrier had invited all of her sisters household to stay with her that night and be protected by Sylvester. There's all kinds of complex human dynamics going here. We don't need to go into, but these guys in the front yard, they somebody apparently saw a face at the upstairs window, thought, uh-huh, they're going to shoot at us. They're going to ambush us. And so they shot a shot. There's a shotgun this time. But at that upstairs window was a, a 13-year-old boy named Reuben Mitchell, who had been sound asleep, jumped up to the window when he heard the first shooting, and groggily was looking out there and got hit by two shotgun pellets. One of them tunneled along the side of his jaw, and that was not the most serious one. The worst one didn't hit him at all because it broke the glass, and the glass put out one of his eyes. This upstairs sleeping area is full of children who are now are 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 diving under beds or getting anywhere mm-hmm. they they can. One of them pulls Reuben down from the window. Then there's a lull. We don't know. You can almost hear the guys thinking out in the front yard. Oh my God! What have we done now? Yeah. And so they don't know though who's dead, who's not. They don't know what's in the house. They're trying to persuade themselves that these are these are bad black scoundrels they've been firing at, but they got to find out, but the house won't open up. So Mm -hmm. here's Polly Wilkerson and the logging boss, Henry Andrews, at the front door. Meanwhile, from upstairs, one of the children there who's come to stay with Sarah on this strange invitation is Minnie Mitchell, who became, I found her in 1983 after a lot of searching. She is the central witness in the Rosewood events, the kind of witness that in oral history you hunger to to, to find, but almost never do. Usually, the good witnesses are very reliable and they didn't see anything. (laughs) Minnie Mitchell was right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. She, She had a nervous problem where she couldn't be separated from her grandmother. All this stuff started happening. Her grandmother was down on the ground floor. So Minnie opens it here in this in this lull. She opens the door from the sleeping area, comes down the stairs, and there she is, not knowing that only a few inches away from her, separated by the front door, are Polly Wilkerson and Henry Andrews about to break in. But suddenly, as she stands there, she's jerked back into the darkness. And Sylvester Carrier has come. Up the hall to cover the front door, and he sees her there. And he pulls her back, and there's a firewood bin cut under the stairway. He pulls her back, and he into that, and he's crouching there with the with with his shotgun on Minnie's shoulder. Minnie insisted that that was the positioning, and she was adamant about it. Oh yes, yeah, Sylvester was protecting me because he had me right in front of him this is why I have I say he shouldn't be idealized too much we don't know what that means yeah okay here he's pointing boom the door breaks open it's Wilkerson Polly Wilkerson the deputy he comes stumbling in and so Sil- Sylvester's gun is an old Winchester pump 12 gauge even though it comes from the the 1880s it will shoot six times without a reload it has a pump, not on the not on the barrel, but a trigger guard pump. Wilkerson is dead immediately. Henry Andrews rushes in behind him; he's killed too. And then there's a um, there's another of the local drunks a named Manny Hudson, who's right behind Andrews. He's shot down. He looks like he's dead, but he will later survive, and he's he's on the ports too. Now this is the this is the unthinkable moment. For a black community in Jim Crow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They thought they'd killed a huge number of white guys, but they <laughs> definitely killed two and and wounded one. And and three of the guys in the yard are also wounded, but not not severely. They can all run off, which they do. Now we have another a lull, a silent period. And Sylvester Carrier says to many, he says, Go on back upstairs with the rest of them. Throughout this story, there's an eminently small amount of attention paid to the the concept of rescuing the children. The adults mostly flee for themselves, with some very notable exceptions. But uh, um, at this point, Sylvester apparently goes out the back. So we have no more witnesses that know what happened to him. So Minnie goes back upstairs, and everybody's in shock up there. But the, then they rouse the oldest uh, boy up there to get him, and he leads him down the stairs and around the corner, out the back porch, and they flee.
1: Mm-hmm. Into the Gulf Hammock, right?
2: Actually, the Gulf Hammock that was too a little too forbidding. It's in oh, one okay. direction. Mm-hmm. They flee around on the road to a, a place called Wiley, which is two miles up the railroad, because they have relatives there. Hmm. But their relatives won't take them in. Everybody knows, I mean, immediately everybody knows that that there's going to be a huge rampage. Yeah. Because, I mean, if there had just been a shootout, even without anybody killed, there would have been. Mm-hmm. But they seemed to, to know that everybody, white and black, seemed to take, as a matter of course, that this was the dance. You you get into it, there'll be a rampage, and they came. And so Minnie and her mm-hmm. group, they went to the relatives, the relatives wouldn't take them, but they said, oh, the boss of the turpentine company where the, there's a, a pine grove out where you can hide. And what happened was, and this is part of the dance, too, that we never hear about because it was so secret. And the reason it was secret was not sinister. It was because there was a number of whites who were hiding these fleeing black people. Mm-hmm. And... And so nobody would publicize what they did or who they were. Yeah. But they were they were influential whites that lived at points along the railroad. One was the uh, the sawmill boss three miles away. One was the white storekeeper in Rosewood itself, John Wright. One was uh, a D.P. McKenzie at the turpentine camp. And then eight miles farther on, there was a, a woods rider, a turpentine woods rider named Kaysen. And he was known as something of an outlaw, mm-hmm. but apparently he was—he was also just a nonconformist. And he yeah. so he—he he came in and helped. They helped all these people hide. Meanwhile, whites are flooding in. Apparently, they kill Sylvester Carrier, but under circumstances of enough mystery, where the legends live forever, it was like it was like with Zapata in Mexico. Yeah. Oh, he lives. He lives. That, True. at any rate, there were several. These The white guys are flooding in from mm-hmm. all directions. They really don't get there much until dawn on Friday. But in the meantime, some of them have done the first arson and burned a few buildings along the railroad track. And then attention uh, shifts to the sawmill town three miles up the railroad. And the mob tries to break in there because the majority of people that live in that town are black in the in the black quarters as laborers for the sawmill company. So the sawmill company gets its white employees, and they have a big confrontation there to keep the mob out. And that also was, I mean, there's a lot of drama in these incidents that remain almost totally cryptic because of the danger that, more mob violence might be ignited. Right. That was avoided. Meanwhile, these influential whites that have the sanctuaries have rules. This is all somehow understood that in their sanctuaries, there can be only women and children, no men or older boys, because the mob is going to think that they were the uprisers and that's their targets. And if they're found in these sanctuaries, maybe some of these crazy guys might just start shooting everybody hmm. so if you're if you're an older boy, even including Reuben Mitchell, now he's got a towel over his eye where he's lost an eye, he has to hide somewhere in the woods with all the rest of them, and it's very cold,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm it's sorry so to stop you, but these these sanctuaries, as you describe them, operated by the 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 wealthy whites. This is almost formal. I mean, the 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 black folks know to go here, and and they will be taken in. This is this is not just ad hoc. You know, any port in the storm. the the, the way you you make it sound is like this is almost planned, like like your fire safety plan. are yeah, well, all, meet all I going to here.
2: Specify point. these guys are not exactly wealthy, but they are influential in their area. Okay, I think ad hoc is the way to put it. They fled to white property, and and the property on, with the assumption that the the property owners would take care of them. They knew John Wright, the storekeeper in Rosewood, so it was a pretty sure bet there. Mm-hmm. And Wiley, they fled to the turpentine camp because they had relatives, and several different groups did that. And and then the owner of the camp, he put them in a pine grove, partly for his own protection, partly to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And then in Sumner, they fled into the lumber, stack, lumber stacks. And then the sawmill boss took them into a community building. The women and children, only women and children, took them into a community building. And his wife and his second-in-command's wife and a couple of other women were cooking for him. And they kept him there two nights.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then they arranged with the conductor of a passenger train that went through there daily to come through the passenger train normally left Cedar Key before dawn. And so they had him stop at these different sanctuary places for lack of a better name. He took all the women and children aboard and they carried them all to safety in Gainesville, but it was a very bittersweet thing. It was not a triumph. It was really a classic operation when authority is outnumbered by a mob Hmm. they're gonna make some sort of sacrifice to satisfy the mob so they don't kill everybody else and what they sacrificed Hmm. in this case was the physical structure of rosewood nobody was left in it but there was no protection for it the mob could burn it anytime they wanted to and finally by sunday when they'd grow they that there was a couple that a couple of people in different cases were a little too sick or too disabled to flee. They killed them, these heroes. And then there was nobody else. They had no war stories to take home. You know, they're supposed to be out yeah. there hunting black rebels. So it's Sunday. Sightseers are beginning to trickle in to the to the ghostly remains of Rosewood. So somebody one by one goes around and burns all these houses. Wow. And that's the end.
1: The Gainesville Sun had started reporting on this at some point, right?
2: Not only did it, yeah, the Gainesville Sun, anonymously under the banner of by the Associated Press, was the uh, the thunderous nationwide voice of the Rosewood violence from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times. These bulletins that were going out anonymously on the on the Associated Press wire. Uh, From the Gainesville Sun, little upstairs office over a railroad track, they were the voice of Rosewood all over the country, and a very distorted voice.
1: Distorted how? Yeah, what were they reporting?
2: It's very interesting. A lot of people have thought there must have been a lot more people killed because the newspapers would cover it up. But the nature of their distortions was not to exaggerate the death toll. They were eager to get anybody, or, or not to not to bury. I'm sorry, not to bury the death toll, not to conceal it. They wanted to they wanted to play it up. But what they distorted, again, it's typical of this kind of riot. They distorted who was to blame, and always, for example, when when Polly Wilkerson went onto Sarah Carrier's porch and killed the dog, then he killed Sarah Carrier. And then they broke in the door and they got killed. Well, white culture immediately took this up as, oh, these guys were official officers of the law going peacefully to ask if anybody had seen any clues. The newspaper took that up and they played it up. And there was a time when one couple was taken as into protective custody. The newspaper caps them as two suspects, as if. Fanny Taylor had suffered some sort of gang rape, and every time a new bulletin went out, it looked like there was more black people that were involved in the attack. These were these were just people that were taken into protective custody by the by the sheriff in in Levy County. Even he was scared of the mob. He was outnumbered. He did what he could to rescue who he could, but he drew the line at armed confrontation with whites, <laughs> and so. That again is the bittersweet distinction. The sheriff was on the side of right and a good guy, but only to a point. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to shoot somebody who might vote for him in the next election. Yeah. It was a lot dicier than that because he was outnumbered. How
0: you talk about being outnumbered? Okay. How how large was the community of Rosewood that essentially fleed? On mass, when they start hearing the initial gunshots, and then how large did the white mob grow to be?
2: Important points: the size of Rosewood has been distorted a lot. In the claims case in the nineties, there was even a, a a university system report went out, and they distorted the census to make it look like Rosewood was five times the size of what it was. Because the claims case at that time was a big cause celebre, and, uh, and they were sort of rooting for it. But the number of African-Americans who lived in Rosewood was probably fewer than 100. Mm-hmm. And the mob was at least several hundred. We oh don't my know. Gosh. The size of the incident, the more one learns the truth and the more one investigates and corroborates all the different stories, the smaller and smaller and smaller it gets. Where on the level of sensationalism, it becomes less and less desirable, less and less important. But because of that process, it becomes much more important because what it reveals about public information and about the general way these things are often distorted. The
1: burning of the town, that started on Sunday?
2: The first in, there was two sprees of arson. Okay. The smaller one happened Thursday night. Apparently there were some guys from Henry Andrews logging operation in Otter Creek that came by one of these motorized work carts on the railroad. After the first shootout, Sylvester Carrier has gone out the back door and the house mm-hmm. is empty now. He's back in the house and he has a second battle with these guys. And they can't because they want to get the bodies off the porch. Their boss is one of the bodies that's on the porch. And apparently he defeats them again. Wow. And they go off. They can't, that body's left there until a daybreak. So it looks like they're the best candidates for whoever it was that went up the railroad a little bit and burned some houses in Rosewood that night. Two sprees of arson. That first one. And then on Sunday.
1: And Sunday's where they burned down everything except John Wright's house, right?
2: Yeah. As it turns out, the more one looks at it, the more exceptions you find. There are Hmm. two or three houses of black people in Rosewood that were not burned down. Hmm. Uh, But, I mean, it was not, this wasn't a very systematic bunch of guys after all. Yeah. But they destroyed the community. Most people were afraid to ever go back. There was one family that went back. Nobody bothered them, but it was so lonely and there was so little communal support. They too eventually left and went to Bradenton.
1: Wow. What happened to the property ownership, though? They, some of these houses were farms That's that people another owned. Another
2: great question because it's another myth that you can see it in news articles. All oh, the property was confiscated. Oh, they had rigged, fraudulent tax auctions to take all. No. The ownership stayed the same. One lady continued paying taxes on her five acres until 1952, when she finally sold. John Wright tried to get some of the people to come back, but especially people that lived in that central area around Sarah Carrier's house where the two whites were killed, they were very afraid to come back, and perhaps with very good reason. You can imagine how vulnerable you'd feel living out there in the woods if if oh, yeah. these whites, maybe the relatives of these people that were shot, you know, one one dark night they wanted to come and finish the job, you wouldn't want to be living there.
0: When and how did the ultimately very successful cover-up campaign begin to, you know, erase the, the memory of, of this event?
2: Another important question. There doesn't seem to have been any official or formal cover-up. It was all, again, all, going through all these different motions. In, fe- in February, they had a special prosecutor to look into the Rosewood event and also a lynching that happened 40 miles north. And all they did was call a bunch of people to the courthouse for a day and then say they couldn't find any witnesses, and they, they closed it up. <laughs> I and mean, here, we, here we got headlines all over the country that this stuff was going on. But there's no microfilm. There's no Internet. And pretty soon, Florida's economy is going to fall in with the collapse of the Florida boom in 1926. And everybody's got their own problems. The railroad into these swamps is taken up. They become more isolated than ever. But a central role, I think, is played by the historians in Gainesville at the University of Florida. I don't think they ever got together perished the thought, and and covered it up. They just acted like it wasn't there. And as the decades passed, most ordinary people are not going to be looking at microfilm of these old, old newspapers, but those guys did. They knew it was there. They saw it. By that time, the civil rights era was occurring. Some of those same historians, one of them was in jail in St. Augustine with the Martin Luther King people. I mean, these are not a garden variety racist, but by the same token, they didn't want to get involved with the stuff that ultimately took me years to puzzle out. These witness memories are elaborate, and the ways that people can confuse and delude themselves about what happened and the amount of testimony you have to get to separate delusion from reliable memory, it takes a long time. And these, I don't think, they just didn't want to deal with it. Hmm. And plus, there was the racism too. Why, you know, that's that's rural black culture. We'll never get the truth out of them. Sort of like an rural-
0: academic racism, as a, as opposed to just a, an outright, you know, and a certain amount of class warfare too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's, I mean, the this case is filled with opportunities to try to define the phenomena as you just did, but these phenomena never get defined because the society's still busy. Avoiding whatever the hell it was that happened out there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Avoiding it now by covering it with all these saccharine myths about Rosewood the Lost Paradise, Rosewood the business dynamo, that was the, you know the the um what is the catchphrase? Oh, they were deprived of their generational wealth. Mm-hmm. In other words, the legend is that there were functioning businesses there and and all this uh uh energy, economic energy that would have passed on to the next generation and the next generation and, and made an Atlanta, you know, eventually there. But mm-hmm. that was not true. How did the
1: claims case get started? So that the Florida ended up paying.
2: The that is an amazingly interesting dis- story. There was I got a phone call in 1991 from a guy named Michael McCarthy, who called himself Michael O. McCarthy because he was a male model and a tipster for tabloid TV programs.
1: <laughs> here, here comes the before, Florida part.
2: <laughs> this is the Florida part for you, yeah. yeah, there you go. He was a true crime guy. And Aline Warnos was uh, in the headlines. You know, she was the female mm-hmm. serial killer, kill the truck drivers and things. Yeah. He looked into that, and then he went to Gainesville looking for something on some students that got killed. And he called a producer friend in Hollywood, and the guy said, well, if you're in Gainesville, you know, there was this story that came out a long time ago uh, about this Rosewood thing. By then, I had taken Rosewood to 60 Minutes, mm-hmm. and which was a great opportunity. Helped me find a lot more witnesses. That was back in 1983, however, still a lot of misconceptions. But McCarthy was able to find my old article. So he calls me up and he says he describes wanting to do a made-for-TV movie based on tearful testimony in the present day looking back. And I said, naively, I said, well, I'm not interested in that. That never happened. That's just fiction. I grossly underestimated Michael McCarthy. And I I didn't understand his world. He was going to invent it. And he did. He found two of the survivors that were still alive that I had found, and he gets each of them to sign an option. They get $1,000 apiece. Nobody directly tells them they've got a lie. But somehow it's understood all the way around that McCarthy's going to – McCarthy doesn't want to pay any more option fees. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's on a tight budget. After all, I mean, male modeling can only take you so far. (laughs) Yeah, or so we hear. (laughs) Yeah, so so we hear. I wish I knew. he he pays them a thousand dollars a piece. They promote this story that they're the only two survivors. Various oh, and they they really ratchet the death toll, you know, way up uh, to the dozens or more. And he takes them around to things like uh, the Mari Povich show, to trying to get Hollywood interested in his movie idea. Well, as he does that, uh, he called me again uh, and. Uh, I wasn't involved in it, but I said, look, Michael, you can't do this. I said, there's other people that are alive. They've already been messed over once when they lost everything they had in the Rosewood violence. And now you're going to do it to them again? He says, well, I just can't afford to pay everybody. (laughs) There There was a reporter on the Miami Herald who got everything all screwed around. And that's a different story. But she jumped the gun on McCarthy. He was trying to embargo the information until he was ready with his movie. She jumped the gun on him, and then he went on the Maury show, and the other survivors found out. By that time, he had recruited the largest law firm in Florida, Holland and Knight, and their pro bono office was gung-ho on this thing, and they were going to, you know, they were going to get reparations for these nice older people, more power to them. Mm-hmm. But... They thought there were only two. McCarthy had packaged it very neatly. Yeah. Suddenly, these enraged other people are calling them up. How dare you cut us out? And so they had to rethink everything. And, and the fellow that was running the case had to go out and talk to these other people and and, and let them into it. Meanwhile, they'd gotten into the Florida legislature. All the legislators are saying, well, how can we do anything on this? We don't even know how many people you're representing. And so that's when haste and political expediency went from bad to worse, because then they said, oh, uh, they had the classic evasion technique. We don't have to do anything on this right now because we can mandate a study. Mm. And they paid $50,000 to the state university system and a graduate student got hold of it. And he hijacked it from the University of Florida, where it was originally supposed to be, logically only 45 miles away, all the way over to FSU because that's where he was. And he got $8,000 of the money. And he wound up writing the study that is the the most god-awful nightmare of errors you ever saw because he had persuaded himself that he had all this knowledge. About Rosewood, and and the same atmosphere of a kind of mass hysteria took over, and he didn't have that knowledge, and so these people were mandated with that, getting that study ready by a deadline for the next legislative session, and suddenly they didn't have anything, and the lady that they picked ahead it called me up, and said, "Can you do a summary for us?" So I did them a two thousand dollar summary. They could have had that. They never needed to pay the $50,000.
3: Right, right.
2: One of my main messages right now is that all the the journalists and the advocates and the bloggers that want to do something on Rosewood should not use that material from the claims case. It looks prestigious and academic, and it's got all the right language and all the fake footnotes and all that stuff, but it's not true. It has a lot of facts in it that are true, but they're so mixed in with falsehoods, there's no way to know unless you know the primary evidence, you can't tell what's what.
3: So
1: how much money went up did the state end up paying?
2: The outcome of the claims case was that by that time there were nine people still alive that had actually been in Rosewood when it was destroyed. Well, all of them had been children, some of them very small children, even infants. But those nine people got 150000 dollars apiece. And then there was a scholarship fund for descendants. And then there were some payments for the land. And these things were all full of delusion and everything you can imagine. But it was it was a choice political moment of the dot-com bubble days. That was that is the only case of successfully getting a government retrospective reparations payout on an atrocity from the lynching era. The only time it's ever happened.
0: Wow. I know the uh, victims of the Tulsa race massacre are seeking that in in Oklahoma and have been for Decades, a, a very prominent uh, race massacre on a, on a dramatically larger scale than what happened at Rosewood and uh, working with the, the Oklahoma legislature has been difficult to, for them to say the very least. There are still survivors of, of that event, which also just passed its 100th anniversary. When you think back, and, you know, this, this whole winding tale that you uncovered and discovered and, and has become so much a, a part of, of your life and, and legacy. What's the lesson here?
2: The lesson from the very beginning in 1923 was how many distorted illusions accompany racial controversy and excitement over race. And that transmuted then through the years from the initial uprising panic and all those illusions, then into all the, the decades of silence. Oh, nothing happened here. This mm. eerie uh, kind of denial complex. And then after I dug it up, like the sorcerer's apprentice, all the old legends and, and bitternesses and things jumped out of the box and created all the new myths like Rosewood the Lost Paradise, Rosewood the Great Massacre,
1: Rosewood the Secret Boyfriend.
2: <laughs> the Secret, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many of these people. It's a very crowded Pandora's box, I'll tell you. <laughs> So the lesson is the consistent pressure, no matter from which side, against honesty and realism in looking at racial controversy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That, to me, is the central. That's the informational lesson. It's, it's not my job to look at the, the political lesson, whatever it may be, yeah. of the atrocity itself.
0: Uh-huh. I'm sure you've been to the area, again, in the, the not-too-distant past. Does that cloud, that unseen uh, layer of of secrecy, uh, hear no evil, speak no evil, still exist there, that w- which you found 40
2: years ago when you, you first arrived? Cedar Key, to me, still has a little bit of that patina, but very little because so many new people have moved in there. And even when I was there at first, when I first, in astonishment, went to the site uh, in 1982, here and there was people living, white people living in trailers. And I went to one lady and I said, gosh, do you know anything? She says, yeah, we know something happened here. Every time the kids, sometimes they're playing in the sand and they'll dig up an old spoon. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was not a big thing to them.
0: Gary Moore has been our guest. Of the book. Rosewood, the full story. We could go on and on and on and, and and still many mysteries that perhaps never will be answered about what exactly happened 100 years ago. But uh, Gary Moore has uh, unearthed and uh, written about more of them than most people ever will. Gary, thank you for shedding light on this uh, remarkable story today.
2: Thank you very much, Chad. Thanks, Gary. We appreciate
3: hey.
1: it. Pleasure. G- Gary didn't mention it, but the state of Florida did put up a historic marker where Rosewood used to be, uh, and they have to keep putting it up because it's become the most vandalized historic marker in the state system.
3: Welcome Welcome to Florida. Florida. Yeah.